What got you there with got you got you What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney Today on What Got You There Sean talks with AJ Jacobs AJ is an author journalist, lecturer, and human guinea pig. He has written four New York Times bestsellers that combine memoir, science, humor, and a dash of self-help. He is also editor-at-large at Esquire Magazine, a commentator on NPR, and a columnist for Mental Floss Magazine. He is currently helping to build a family tree of the entire world and held the biggest family reunion ever in 2015. Jacob's new book, It's All Relative, Adventures Up and Down the World's Family Tree, is about the extraordinary changes happening in family research and DNA and how they have impact on politics, race relations, health, and happiness. AJ, thank you for joining us on What Got You There? How are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks, Sean. How are you? I am doing wonderful. Uh, you are someone I've, I've enjoyed your work over the over the time, so I cannot wait to dive deeper on some of your recent projects. And your newest book, It's All Relative. Now, I feel like most people try to avoid family gatherings, but not you. <laughs> <laughs> You're trying to unite the entire human race into one family tree. You want to talk about that? Yes, I leaned into it. I, instead of <laughs> avoiding uh, family reunions, I tried to throw a family reunion for everyone on Earth, and that is part of my next book. Um, and the book began because a couple of years ago, I got this email, and it was from a guy who said, "I." It was very strange. I, he said, "I've never, uh, you've never met me, but I am your eighth cousin." So I was. <laughs> Immediately suspicious, I thought this guy is going to ask me to wire ten thousand dollars to his Nigerian bank, but uh, but he didn't. He turned out to be part of this group of people who are building what I call the ultimate social network. This, which is a family tree that unites everyone on Earth, and right now there are literally millions of people in dozens of countries, hundreds of ethnicities, all on the same tree, and. Uh, once I dip my toe into genealogy, which I always thought was a little stodgy, it turns out it is cutting edge and it is fascinating, even thrilling. I know it's crazy to say, but it touches every part of our lives now increasingly, like DNA and identity and um, history, race relations, huge uh, effect on that. Uh, so I thought this has to be the topic of my next book. So, I mean, some people might get an email like that and the topic sounds interesting, but then you go on to write an entire book about this. I mean, where's <laughs> the inspiration there? Well, I think you got to look for inspiration everywhere. You know, a, a friend of mine who's a writer says uh, you always have to have sort of a second head, uh, maybe on your shoulder, um, who's looking uh, for uh, looking at your life like what could be an article what could be caught what could be a story what can you use so having this second head evaluating all the time and uh, and that's what i try to do i try to take inspiration i've taken ideas from my family from random thoughts uh from uh i spend 15 minutes a day just trying to generate ideas so it's it's a huge part of my life 15 minutes a day generating ideas how'd you come up with that uh, I, because for me, I, I get some ideas in the shower, but for me, 
actually turning off all computers and all gadgets and really just dedicating myself to generating book ideas or article ideas. It's a little paradoxical because it's almost like um, uh, forced daydreaming, Uh, but it works. It works for me. And I, I generate tons of ideas. Most of them are terrible. (laughs) I think that's the key. That's the key to idea generation or as, uh, yeah, it's like, you know, maybe one or 2% are viable, but, um, but you talk to, I did an article once on creativity and you talk to these creativity scientists, it's all of numbers game, you know, Picasso did the same. He had lots of terrible ideas and terrible drawing. Mozart had wrote many terrible songs. It's just, you got to get out there and try it and see what works. Anyone from history that you really study to kind of dissect their creativity process? That's a good question. Uh, Well, in this, I I wrote another uh, article on how to overcome writing block. And uh, it was interesting because there are all these uh, writers throughout history, like um, uh, Ben Franklin wrote nude and, uh, Nabokov. Did you implement the nude writing? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I figured. I would, actually, I think it was Ben Franklin wrote in a bath. He wrote <laughs> in a bath. And uh, Nabokov wrote while standing up. And another philosopher named Schiller, he wrote he would have a drawer full of rotten apples. And somehow that sparked his creativity. <laughs> so I figure if you are in a bath uh, standing up with rotten apples, that is like foolproof. Uh, but, uh, but it's actually, I do find for me, the writer's block, the best way to do it is just to start typing, uh, anything just, you know, about the pigeons on the ledge outside my window and the, the very act of typing and moving your fingers really helps you get momentum. And you know, those first 20 minutes are just going to be, well, uh, useless. You're going to throw them away. But just having those out there, um, it gives you the confidence and momentum to start writing real stuff. So it seems like you have some great processes. Do you have a specific morning routine or writing routine you've implemented? Uh, well, one thing is I, I have three kids, so it is crucial for me to get out of the house because <laughs> they do not uh, they do not love the boundaries. Um which is a shame because I, I'd like to also write on my treadmill desk, which is at home, uh, because I do find that motivating. Uh, it's very hard to fall asleep while you're on yeah. the treadmill. <laughs> you you used that uh, technique when you did Drop Dead Healthy, right? Didn't you walk 1,100 miles or something like that during the writing process? That's right. That's right. I walked... Uh, no, I think it was longer. I don't know. I, I feel I walked to like Arizona. Um, <laughs> since then, I've, I've walked across the U.S. several times. Um, but yeah, I, I find that, you know, there's lots of studies that say that when you are walking, your serotonin level is higher and serotonin is linked to attention. So it actually might help you. Uh, be a better thinker. I, I mean, there's a limit. You don't want to be running because then <laughs> it's a little hard to write. But uh, but walking, uh, I find, does help keep me alert. Okay. So I want to jump back into It's All Relative, your newest book. So you have this idea. You get the email. 
And then how does that, what's the first step in writing that book? I mean, it seems like such a cumbersome task tackling that. How, how do you go about that? Well, I'd say there are two ways. First, uh, in all my books, I like to have a structure, a goal, because that way I feel the reader can follow along and be, uh, there's a, an element of suspense. So in this one, my goal was to throw the biggest family reunion ever, um, invite millions of cousins and, and break the world record. Uh, so that was the goal. And then I just brainstormed about family because it is the most basic unit of, uh, uh, of our species. And it is, you know, everyone can relate to it, but there's so many angles you could take. So I wanted to brainstorm what are the most interesting and relevant angles. So, uh, there's everything from, uh, black sheep, uh, to, Family feuds. I I have a chapter where I interview the Hatfields and the McCoys. Um, uh, there's there's stuff on race and uh, DNA. And now that millions of people are taking DNA tests, I mean there there's some great stuff resulting from that. But there's also a lot of surprises that are not always pleasant. I interviewed one man who has nine siblings and. When uh, they all took DNA tests as adults, they found they had nine different fathers. Wow. They all assumed they had the one. So it was like the Maury Povich show times <laughs> nine. And uh, so it was fascinating putting together these stories, figuring out which were the most interesting, all along while having this goal at the end. Can you talk about the race relations and kind of how this is changing certain people's mindsets when they're finding who some of their relatives are? Oh yeah, well it's it's really interesting, and this is uh, I think going to uh, I think it could be a real force for good. There is a chance it'll backfire, which I'll get to in a sec. But most people, it turns out, are mixed. We're all mutts. Uh, so Henry Louis Gates, who was one of my advisors on the project, he talks about your average African American has. 24% European ancestry. So we are a mix, much more of a mix. And these there are white supremacists who are taking these DNA tests now. And uh, and some of them are getting back results that they're part Jewish or part African American. And their reactions differ. Some of them flip out and are in denial and say that, no, this is a multicultural conspiracy by the by the DNA companies. Others have this almost Hollywood-like change of heart hmm. and realize, you know what, this is this is a bad way to think. Um, so I am hopeful that it will, especially as intermarriage increases, that we will, it will help erode tribalism. It'll, it'll lessen this idea that we're all separate. Uh, there is a world where it backfires and people become obsessed with their percentage and trying to up their percentage of Scandinavian or whatever. Uh, but I am hopeful it'll be the former. What do you think this looks like in, say, fast forward three to five years with all of this global DNA and all of the big data they have around that? What do you what do you think is capable with that? Well, as I say, it could be great, which I am fingers crossed that it'll be good. Is that um, what you think is going to happen, though? Or are you... I know I you're an optimist, so I love hearing that. I am that. an optimist. I do think it'll increase connections. Um, and when you take these DNA tests, you know, you get a, a list of uh, 1,200 people who share enough DNA with you to be considered cousins, like 
third, fifth, seventh cousins. Um, and uh, I've had a very positive experience with that. Uh, you know, none of them have asked me for money. None of them have, uh, you know, shown up on my doorstep. <laughs> but it's, it's just meeting people. It's a way to meet people from different backgrounds, but still have this bond. Who are some of the interesting relatives you've connected the dots on? Well, uh, what I love about this this new family history is uh, you've got the DNA, but you've also got these massive family trees online with millions of people. So you can literally connect to anyone you want. You can figure out, it's like six degrees of Kevin Bacon, but everyone's Kevin Bacon. So for instance, Barack Obama is my fifth great aunt's husband's brother's wife's seventh great nephew. That is the actual <laughs> line. So we're very close. I'm shocked he didn't show up to Thanksgiving. <laughs> right? <laughs> he has a lot of other cousins. So uh, so I love this idea of you can, and I used it almost when I was writing my book. I wanted to interview some interesting people. So I would figure out how they were related to me. And I've, you know, I, I called up uh, President George H.W. Bush's uh, press secretary, and I explained. Uh, she said, "We're he's not doing interviews." But I said, "You know what? I am. I I, I just want to let you know I'm his fourth cousin, three times removed, <laughs> aunt's nephew, whatever." And uh, and she's like, "Oh well, let me see what I can do." And it actually worked. I got to fly down and interview him about what it's like to be a patriarch of a family uh, and what he's learned. So uh, it is a great, uh, it's a, it's like LinkedIn. It is a great icebreaker. Oh, I love hearing these stories. And then, I mean, it finally comes together, the biggest family reunion ever in 2015. What was that moment like? W was it joyful for you? Was it, were you stressed out? How was that? It was both, combination of both. I mean, yeah, you know, when you throw a party, uh, I've only thrown parties with like 20 people, but still I get stressed out. Like you know, what's, what's going wrong is the hummus dip, uh, <laughs> you know, sour. So imagine that <laughs> multiplied where you have 10,000 people. So I was miserable, but at the same time I was ecstatic because it was such a, a crazy weird event with, you just had such a mix of humanity. Uh, there was scientists and celebrities. And at one point on stage, we had a, uh, a minister, a rabbi, and a Buddhist monk. So it was like the setup to a joke. So it was like <laughs> just the, the craziest day of my life. And, uh, and, and I couldn't believe it. the message resonated with, with that many people that I was actually able to get uh, that many people with. And especially, I had no um, no experience in event planning, so that was like <laughs> quite a task to undertake. Very, then. oh yeah. Who are you most excited learning. to see there? Uh, well, I did love that Henry. I mean, it was well. What's most exciting was just the random mix of people. So you had uh, Henry Louis Gates, but you also had like the '80s sitcom star Mary Lou Henner, and you had. Uh, <laughs> Uh, David Blaine, the magician, uh, but you had George Church, who's the Harvard scientist who is trying to resurrect the woolly mammoth. He's the geneticist at Harvard who is uh, who is who helped invent CRISPR, uh, the gene editing tool. So it was just wild. Oh, and we had, you know, Sister Sledge, 
the ultimate family song, they were actually there singing uh, We Are Family uh, with everyone singing <laughs> along. Oh, that's great. That is so entertaining to hear about. I love the stories around that. I need Thanks, to know, Sean. though, what were you like growing up? I mean, you seem like you were just constantly doing experiments, so curious. Have you always been like this? I have had a deep curiosity all my life. Um, yeah, I don't think, uh, you know, I wasn't born into any any interesting circumstances. I like I'm not like Frank McCord, who grew up in, you know, in Ireland with this, uh, you know, extreme life. So, but I I was always curious. And for instance, in high school, I I grew up in New York City. And in high school, I lived a block and a half away from the Scientology Center in New York City, the Celebrity Scientology Center. Uh, and I'd always wondered what it was like. So I went in there one day and spent like four or five hours in there. And it was wild. I loved the experience. I did not become a Scientologist, uh, but I loved uh, at one point. I somehow they were trying to show me a movie and I snuck out of the room and wandered around. I found on the, the top floor this huge office with a big wooden desk, and on the desk was a captain's hat and the uh, the sign L. Ron Hubbard. And uh, and I they caught up with me and they said, "What do you do?" And I said, "Well, is I'm just interested. Is L. Ron coming in today? Because at that point he had been dead like ten years." And they're like, "Well, no, but we." We want to have an office open in case he does return to bodily form. So that just blew my mind. And uh, and I, it was just one more reason to be hooked on exploring the world. So you were quite an explorer. When did you know you were going to become a writer? Well, it was partly by default. I graduated college with no actual uh, marketable skills aside <laughs> from aside from uh, sort of being able to put together a sentence. So uh, I started, and this was a long time ago, so this path is not what I would recommend now, but I worked at a tiny newspaper writing every day about the most mundane, you know, sewage treatments and taxes on uh, people's lawns and whatever. So, uh, so that's how, and then I just kept going and going with some delusional optimism that I could actually make it, uh, and eventually the delusional optimism paid off. Did that early writing lead to your diversity? I mean, just reading some of your past books, they're on so many different topics. I feel like you're pretty unique in that perspective. Well, thanks, Sean. Yeah, I mean, I there's uh, I it's hard nowadays to be a generalist or. Uh, there's this word dilettante, which I actually uh, I want to reclaim and, and as a positive thing, because I do think interdisciplinary thought is so important. Like the best ideas are ones that combine uh, from from two radically different uh, uh, specialties. So that is what I love. I love being able to take the mix and, and mix it together. And my friend James Altucher calls it uh, idea sex. So <laughs> mating together these ideas from different, uh, from different areas. As someone who's always looking for ways to improve my mental and physical performance, I started using Four Sigmatic about a year ago, and I love their products. 
At Four Sigmatic, they believe in the real magic of functional mushrooms like reishi, chaga, cordyceps, and lion's mane, as well as other superfoods and adaptogens to help us live healthier, more enhanced lives. Everyone's talking about Four Sigmatic, including Time Magazine, Vogue, Forbes, even the New York Times. My favorite product is their convenient new Brain Stick Pack. Perfect before a workout or a study session, their dual mushroom blend supports memory attention and brain health. I also have been using their cordyceps before workouts and love the results. I've experienced the benefits of these delicious packets, but now it's time for you to as well. To receive 15% off your order, use discount code WGYT at checkout at foursigmatic.com or by heading to foursigmatic.com forward slash WGYT. Today, what got you there is being fueled by Soniva Super Coffee. Soniva provides an organic bottled coffee blended with lactose-free protein and MCTs from coconut oil for all-day energy. Grab a bottle at your local Whole Foods market or use discount code WGYT at drinksupercoffee.com for 20% off your order. Distilled utilizes the same fabrics, factories, and wash houses as the best-known brands and designers while skipping the markups and middlemen. The result? Top-quality denim without the retail runaround. Just go to dstld.com and see where minimalist design meets maximum comfort. They have a 100% fit guarantee, offering free shipping and returns until you find the perfect pair. Inspired by the creative class, Distilled is the perfect brand for those who have other things to think about besides getting dressed. You'll look good no matter what with Distilled. Distilled has been featured in Forbes, Time, and TechCrunch, as well as on denim-clad celebrities in GQ and Men's Health. You can find the brand's amazing selection of outwear, leather jackets, t-shirts, and more using the same principles of high-grade materials at low-end cost. Distilled is your answer to elevated style without elevated prices. Just go to dstld.com right now and use the promo code JOURNEY10 in all caps at checkout to get 10% off your first purchase. So would you mind if we went through some of your past books and and some of the experiments and and ideas you implemented? I think this would be so fascinating for some of the listeners. I would not mind at all. Okay, so I would like it. Your book, My Life is an Experiment. I would love to know about the radical honesty part, how you implemented that, what that looks like in your practice. Oh, yeah. Well, this one came about because I found out about this guy in Virginia. He's a psychologist, and he founded this movement called Radical Honesty. And the idea is that you never lie. But he goes further than that. He says, whatever's on your brain, it should come out of your mouth, like no filter, and which is crazy. Uh, it's like you know, the Jim Carrey movie, you Liar Lie, you know. <laughs> uh, you look fat in that dress. Uh, so, uh, but I decided maybe there are some redeeming qualities to this way of life. Let me try it for a couple of months. And uh, I did. And it was, uh, it was indeed the, <laughs> some of the worst times of my life. But there were also <laughs> some of the best times. You know, it, it was, it, I learned a lot and I changed a lot from doing that would your wife take you out of the house during this time oh well that was dangerous yeah <laughs> i would be terrified to go anywhere with oh you. <laughs> yeah no i mean we did go I, there was one time we went to a restaurant and we saw some friends of hers from college that she hadn't seen in a long time and she's and they have said oh we should all get together and have a play date with our kids and i had to say what i was thinking which was you look like nice people 
but I have no interest in ever seeing you again uh, because I just don't, I don't have time to see my, my own friends from high school and college. I, I can't uh, take on these new friends. And they were horrified. My wife was horrified, of course. Uh, and in a sense, it was quite effective in that we never did see them again. But uh, it was also uh, not something I recommend. I, at the end, uh, I do think that that's a harmful type of radical honesty. But I do think that there are po there positive radical honesty or sustainable radical honesty that I endorse, and that can because it doesn't always have to be brutal. You can be radically honest with someone about how much you appreciate them. Or uh, I had during this month, I remember I had I had a newspaper. Um, editor, my first boss at a tiny newspaper. And uh, just out of the blue, I hadn't spoke to him in 10 years. I called him and told him how much he meant to me because that's what I was feeling at the time. And I think that was a really positive experience for both of us. So radical positive honesty I endorse. Okay. Taking a little bit of the good with the bad there. And then what about 240 minutes of fame? I, I found this hysterical what you did with Noah Taylor. Oh, thanks, Sean. Yes, this was, I was working in an entertainment magazine like a long time ago now. Uh, I don't know, like 20 years ago, 15, 20 years ago. And I looked exactly like this sort of B-level actor named Noah Taylor. <laughs> and he had these glasses, the clunky glasses and long hair, which was what I was at the time. It was not a good look for either of us. Uh, <laughs> but I looked exactly like him. We found out he was not going to the Academy Awards because uh, he lived in Australia. So I went in his place sort of as him in disguise. What's it like to be a movie star? And I got to say, it was it was fantastic because I got to the Oscars and there, you know, people were just so positive, just nonstop ass kissing, telling me how brilliant I was. And I would sign autographs and, um, and even though I knew the praise wasn't for me, it still sunk in. I still got this huge ego, uh, and I started to believe uh, that uh, how great I was. So it is a it is a nice lesson in when you pretend to do something, it has an effect. Yeah, you know. <laughs> so you, did you uh, just show up at the Oscars? Did you drive your car there? Did you take a limo? Show up on bicycle? What, what did you do? Did you just walk up? I. Um, yeah, well, we did. Since it was an entertainment magazine, we did have ticket. We were allowed in as reporters. So, but we, my, my friend, went. Uh, we got all dressed up in tuxedo and arrived in a limo. And I stepped onto the red carpet. I never said I am this actor. I just stepped onto the red carpet and the paparazzi went nuts <laughs> and people were screaming, Noah, I love you. And the, all these TV people wanted to interview me for their, you know, entertainment tonight like shows. Uh, so it was a real rush. You got to see, I mean, you do get to see why stars become so demented, uh, because they get this nonstop positive feedback. Uh, so, uh, you know, it gave me a little bit more insight into into that craziness. Did you ever hear from Noah's people? I did actually. They were. It turns out Noah doesn't like that whole aspect. Doesn't like the the hoo ha. So he was uh, he was happy. I was there, <laughs> and I tried to represent him well. I didn't, you know, trash any hotel rooms or whatever. 
What about your outsourced life? This is one of the favorite things I've ever read that you've written. So I thought this ah, was so entertaining. You. Well, this started, this was again a long time ago, and Tom Friedman had written a book called The World is Flat, which is all of, it was the first time people had really heard about outsourcing, where you know banks and law firms were, were outsourcing their mundane, boring data entry tasks to India. And I was just a writer, but I was like, I like this idea of like, you know, let someone else do the boring stuff. <laughs> so I, I hired a team of people in Bangalore, India to do everything for me. I took it to the extreme. So uh, they answered my emails. They answered my phone. They argued with my wife for me. Uh, <laughs> How did that time, transpire? Oh, it was fantastic. <laughs> Because she would say, for instance, she said, you know, I can't believe you forgot to get money at the ATM. Uh, we really need it. And I said, okay, hold on. Hold that thought. I'm going to have Asha in Bangalore talk to you about that. So I, um, I emailed Asha, my wife's uh, complaint, and I told Asha, listen, I don't want to argue with my wife, but you just tell her. She lost her wallet like two weeks ago, so she shouldn't be attacking me. Now, Asha was like my better half. She's like my conscience. So she took that and instead wrote this beautiful love note to my wife, how much I loved her. And she sent little like a, a little gif of, gif of dancing bears. And uh, so my wife loved it because... It, she, Asha was so much more, <laughs> so much more positive than I was. It didn't actually help our relationship. <laughs> what other non-traditional tasks did you have them do? Well, one that I found very helpful, weirdly enough, was that they worried for me. I outsourced my worry. Get out of here! I, I know I, <laughs> and it worked. I actually think it is a good investment of like ten dollars an hour. Because uh, I said, you know, I I have this deadline. I'm super stressed about meeting it, but and I'm worrying about it. But I know worry is a terrible, you know, thinking to problem solve is good, but worrying just going over the same information is just a waste of time. So I said, you guys, would you please worry for an hour a day about this? And it it worked. It was crazy because whenever I started to worry, I'd be like, you know what? They got this covered. They're worrying. I can go about my business. Uh, so I actually have to get back into that. I need to hire them again to worry because I'm stressed about a couple of things. Uh, it, it is just a it is a, a crazy effective tool. So you really uh, felt that much of an effect from it? I did. It's the weird thing. <laughs> I've got to uh, try this now. I recommend it. I mean, it's interesting because I once... Uh, it reminded me of this technique, the Tanya Harding, the ice skater who was kind of crazy and bad. <laughs> just a little uh, bit. Yeah. So, I mean, she's not a role model, but, <laughs> but she did once I heard her in an interview and they said, how can you skate with all this going on? And she said, well, what I do is before I go on the ice, I pick a little spot on the side of the rink and I, touch it and I put all my worries into that spot and I say okay they'll be there for me waiting when I get off but I'm not going to think about them while I'm on huh. and it just uh, I also have done that it's just a very 
I find it very effective because worry is such a drain and a waste of time and I hate it. So these ways of almost recognizing the uselessness of worry are very effective for me. What else do you spend time that's just wasted on right now? Uh, well, I would say, I mean, I think that my mind, like everyone's mind, I think, uh, I feel I have to babysit it because if I don't, it's going to go off into these um, dark places that are not <laughs> helpful. So, for instance, you know, revenge fantasies from, you know, someone who insulted my uh, my buck teeth when I was, you know, 11 years old. That is not a good use of time. So I always try every few minutes, I like try to take a step back and say, what am I thinking about? Is this a good use of my time? Uh, is it making me happy? Is it making the world better? And if not, then I try to readjust. Hmm, that's a good perspective. So when you were writing this book, One Man's Humble Quest to Improve Himself, did you feel like you improved yourself throughout this process? Uh, uh, sure. Uh, wait, which book was it? So the, My Life is an Experiment. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, every one of those experiments, they're like a dozen different experiments where I tried. And every one I learned something. Uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't take the whole thing. And some of it was painful. Uh, like the radical honesty, but everyone there was a little takeaway. And I do believe that's why it is good to experiment with your life a little. You know, you don't have to say everything that's on your mind. They can be small experiments, but I encourage everyone to do it, even if it's just changing your toothpaste uh, every month and trying it new. See, you know, you're, I was using the same toothpaste for 25 years just because some kid in my, in my summer camp used it. And <laughs> I was like, oh, that seems like a good one. But then I tried all these different ones and found one that made me, that I liked a lot better. So why not, you know, experiment? That's how the human species has progressed is by experimenting. So uh, I try to apply it to my own life. Are you doing a ton of things that are just uncomfortable for you every single day to grow? Uh, yes and no. I am. Uh, I guess you know, because I, I see you write these books and I'm thinking, all right, during the writing process of this, there's a lot of things that seem to be uncomfortable. But what about your day to day if you're not in the process of actually writing your next book? Well, I am always trying out new strategies, like, you know, with my wife or with my kids or. Um, <laughs> what are some of the strategies you're trying out with your kids? Well, with my kids, well, well, actually, one thing that's interesting is try to, you read these parenting books and then trying to apply that to my wife. And I think she <laughs> applies them to me because there's this whole idea that, uh, when a, when a kid comes home and says, oh, you know, I had a horrible day. This kid was mean, was mean to me. Don't argue with them. Don't say like, oh, I'm sure it was fine or, you know, just ignore them. The best thing at the, at the start, at least, is to listen and make these sort of soothing noises like, mm, yeah, that must have been hard and rephrase. So I do like if my wife comes and, and is bitching about a... Um, a client, because she has a uh, an event company. She puts on scavenger hunts. Watson Adventures scavenger hunts. They're great. Highly recommend them. But they, uh, but she'll come and she'll say this client was so horrible, and uh, and I will instead of saying, oh, just forget about it, or you know, I'm sure it wasn't that bad. 
he just I just go, hmm, that sounds <laughs> terrible. So they they really did that, uh, and it works. I highly recommend. I'm going to be implementing that tonight then. <laughs> Definitely trying that out with the wife. So, I mean, we have a lot of people who are obsessed with health and fitness here, and then you did your book, Drop Dead Healthy. What are some of the biggest takeaways you had in that? Well, it's interesting. I hear a dog in the background. Dogs are very healthy. They are, there are studies that say that people who own dogs live longer, and it's partly because you go for walks, so you're walking more, but partly because just having a, an animal companion lowers your stress level. So I did end up getting a dog. Um, but in general, I would say uh, there's a diet and exercise, of course, everyone knows about, but I think sleep and stress are just as important as diet and exercise. So really not ignoring those. And I say this because I had, uh, ironically, I had a terrible night's sleep last night. So I'm following <laughs> yeah. that. Any tips for things you can implement to have a better night's sleep? Well, one method I use that I found incredibly effective, uh, and other people have too, is when you're going to sleep, I like to go through the alphabet and I try to think of something to be grateful for associated with every letter and it, so it could be you know a avocados i love avocados so i'm <laughs> grateful for those. b you know uh, i went to bali on my honeymoon i'm so lucky that i got to go to bali what a beautiful country and just keep going and and every night try to think of different ones and it takes your brain out of the you know the worrying and ruminating over all that went wrong that day I find it really uh, has helped. When you were looking to fix your stomach, any particular diets work really well for you? Well, diet, I mean, is a huge area. And I tried all these different diets. So I did the paleo diet and the, uh, the vegan and uh, something called calorie restriction, where you like are starving yourself all the time because there like are. Fun. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. Yeah, the idea is that you live longer. But uh, whether or not you do, you, you feel like you're living longer because it's so horrible, like life just stretches out. Um, but yeah, I, I generally go with sort of the Michael Pollan theory that uh, you should eat mostly plants. Uh, and I know there are a lot of uh, low-carb folks out there. But uh, so the one thing both sides can agree on is avoid processed sugar like there's there you you'll be hard to find a nutritionist or scientist who says oh yeah processed processed carbs are good for you <laughs> so avoid processed sugar whether you're going to eat mostly protein or mostly vegetables uh that really is the key for me what book of yours was the most enjoyable to write uh that's an interesting question i mean I, I guess there are two parts when I'm writing. There's the living, the experience, and then actually writing it. So um, I, I, I learned a huge amount when I lived by the rules of the Bible. I won't say it was enjoyable because there were some things I had to, I, you know, I looked crazy and I I was doing some some. Uh, activities that were just bizarre in case any of the listeners haven't read that you want to you want to talk about what you were actually wearing and then some of the things you had to implement during that time 
Sure. And that came about because I grew up without religion, but I wanted to learn uh, about it. So I dived in and thought one way to learn would be to live by the Bible as literally as possible. So I was following not just the Ten Commandments, but hundreds of rules in the Bible. Uh, like in the Old Testament, it says you can't shave the corners of your beard. Uh, I didn't know where the corners were, so I just <laughs> let the whole thing grow, and I looked like I looked like you know Ted Kaczynski by the end. I just looked crazy, and um, uh, but but for instance, you, you know, you asked about my wife. There's parts in the Bible that says you cannot touch women when they're menstruating because they're impure. But it goes further. Leviticus says that you should not sit on a seat where a menstruating woman has sat. And my wife found that offensive, so she sat in every seat in our apartment, <laughs> and I just had to stand up for the whole time, which for, I learned later from the health book is actually good. It's good to stand, so she was doing me a favor. Oh, that is too funny. And, and you're someone who sparks all these new ideas, new ways to look at things. So for you, what does it mean to be a delusional optimist? Well, I think that delusional optimism is, is a double-edged sword. It, 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 it can be used for good, and it's also something to be careful with. But I do believe you need some sense of delusional optimism to make it in any, as an entrepreneur or in any business, because the chances of starting uh, something that will be successful are very slim. The failure rate is very high. So uh, I find you, I just had, like when I'm writing a book, I just convince myself, oh, this book is going to be a hit. Uh, even though uh, I know deep down the chances are very slim. But if you say it to yourself, if you act as if it's going to be a hit, that's the key. Uh, eventually your mind will catch up and uh, and you'll get this confidence to keep going. So that's the upside. I think you really do need it um, to accomplish anything, uh, you, you know, from getting up in the morning to going to the moon. The downside is you need, it, it can, uh, I think the downside is, for instance, uh, right now in the White House, uh, I think Donald Trump had delusional optimism that he could be a good president. And even though he had no experience in uh, in government, uh, and so his delusional optimism was infectious and very effective. You know, it, it worked. He got uh, millions of people to vote for him. But then he got to the White House, and I think he's realized that. Oh no, I don't know how to do this. Uh, hopefully, he's realized it. Everyone else has. Uh, so. Uh, so that's the downside. I think you got to have delusional optimism, but then a small part of your brain has to be reserved for realism. So balancing those two, I think, is the key to success. It's always a delicate balance with those two. And then you kind of you hit on the entrepreneurial listeners, and then also Trump, how he was able to market himself. How what do you use for marketing your your newest books or a different article you're writing? Well, one important technique I have is uh, I, I used to think of marketing as this uh, boring slog that I had to do after my real job of writing. But then I reframed it and said, you know what? Um, the marketing can be as creative and fun as 
uh, as coming up with ideas and research, and you have to be creative. So, for instance, uh, I try to take my books and and I segment them, uh, segment the topic to appeal to different markets. So, with the Bible book, I was like, the Bible is so big; it contains all sorts of topics. So, what if I wrote a uh, like uh, sex advice from the Bible for a relationship website, which I did, or uh, even <clears throat> you know, music from the Bible. What does the Bible say about music for uh, a music site? And I was able to segment it and market it to all of these different uh, areas, and it and it was very successful. That book did very well. So, changing my attitude from marketing as this slog to something fun and creative really uh, made a difference. I mean, you're the idea guy, so we're talking marketing. What would what should the title of this episode be? <laughs> that is a great uh, question. Well, let's see. I mean, it's interesting because my uh, I also think titles are very important. Um, the year of living biblically was successful because you got you knew what you were getting in that um, in that book. And I remember Tim Ferriss called me. Uh, while he was writing the four-hour work week because he liked my article on outsourcing and he asked for permission to reprint it. And he said his book, at that time his book was called Drug Dealing for Fun and Profit um, because he had a, like a smart drug, farm, you know, biopharmaceutical business. Uh, and then smartly he changed it to the four-hour <laughs> work week. Uh, I thought, you know, he was going to sell like 200 copies, which is why I said, sure, you can have my article. I don't need any money. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then it's all like, you know, 43 million. Uh, but it's actually good for me in the end because all of his, uh, his uh, people, his followers uh, read my article. Uh, but anyway, the point is, yes, titles are incredibly important. And I think the more... Uh, descriptive they are instead of being clever or cute just saying right you know this podcast will change your life you know this uh, this podcast will make you the best person ever just making it really uh, so those are bad ideas I would need as I say remember I said that 98% of my ideas are bad I would need like <laughs> 15 minutes no I, I, I kind of wanted to throw you on the spot there even just to see idea generation I was I was curious how you were going to talk that out so it's, it's interesting hearing your perspective and then obviously you mentioned Tim's book and that's how I first came across you so I, I am glad you allowed him to use that for his book the four-hour work week ah uh, good see it worked in my favor in the end yep yeah so talking about other people Who's your favorite person you've ever written an article on or worked with? Oh, that's interesting. Well, I will say I try, I, I've tried to avoid superlatives recently, you know, best, favorite, worst, because I think that that kind of thinking has gotten us to where we are. Like, you know, reality shows are all about the best, the most thrilling rose ceremony ever. And, <laughs> And that has led to uh, a reality show uh, star in the White House. So, uh, in general, I will I do try to avoid best worst. Um, but that said, uh, there have been some fascinating people. Uh, let me try. I mean, for my new book on 
uh, on family, uh, I found just listening, some of these stories were mind blowing. There is a guy I interviewed, uh, in this chapter on what does family mean and, and how does DNA relate to family? And he grew up in the Midwest. He had nine siblings and they all took DNA tests as an adult. And it turned out they had nine different fathers. Like none of them were from the father they uh, presumed. It was like the Maury Povich show times nine. It's and definitely going to uh, be an awkward holiday season. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's the beauty of it. They actually were able to get through it. And uh, some of them, not all of them, liked having this other family and more cousins. And the father, what I think he is like the hero of this because he treated all the other ones like they were his biological kids. Hmm. Yeah. So when, you, when you're thinking about next books, any any topic you're very curious and would love to write about, dive deep on? I do have one uh, I'm already working on that was due about three weeks ago. So, so I'm glad uh, you're spending time on the podcast then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is, I should be writing as I'm talking to you on the treadmill. But uh, yeah, I'm actually very excited about it. It's the TED Talks have their own book and uh, book line. So uh, you do a book and, and do a TED Talk about it. And so that's where I'm doing it. And it is, um, the idea is I take one of my daily joys, which is my morning cup of coffee, and I try to thank every person involved in making it a reality. So I went to Columbia and I thanked the people who picked the beans, but also the guy who designed the logo and the the truckers who delivered it and the people who made the tires for the truck and the, the guy who got the rubber. So the idea is there are thousands of people, because you can just go as wide as you want. There are thousands of people involved in every little thing we do. And we totally take them for granted. So this was sort of an, uh, it, it's similar to the connection theme in my uh, my family book and, and many other books. The idea is that we're all connected and this is just a way to remind people. Oh, I love that. Always thinking outside the box, exploring new topics. So I'm interested to read that one. Any idea when that one should be coming out? That is, um, if I, uh, if I <laughs> if you stick to any deadlines here. Exactly. It should be out next year, fall of 2018. Okay, great. Well, once that uh, releases, we will definitely get that linked up. But man, AJ Jacobs, fascinating, interesting, too many words to describe you. I can't thank you enough for joining us on the podcast. Where should my listeners stay connected with you? Ah, lovely. Well, uh, my website is ajjacobs.com and my Twitter is... uh, at AJ Jacobs or Facebook, AJ Jacobs. And uh, yeah, I would love to stay in touch with your listeners. Great. Thank you so much, AJ. Thank you, Sean, my cousin, of course. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Thanks again. All right. Talk to you soon. As someone who's always looking for ways to improve my mental and physical performance, I started using Four Sigmatic about a year ago, and I love their products. At Four Sigmatic, they believe in the real magic of functional mushrooms like reishi, chaga, cordyceps, and lion's mane, as well as other superfoods and adaptogens to help us live healthier, more enhanced lives. Everyone's talking about Four Sigmatic, including Time Magazine, Vogue, Forbes, even the New York Times. My favorite product is their convenient new brain stick pack. 
perfect before a workout or a study session. Their dual mushroom blend supports memory attention and brain health. I also have been using their cordyceps before workouts and love the results. I've experienced the benefits of these delicious packets, but now it's time for you to as well. To receive 15% off your order, use discount code WGYT at checkout at foursigmatic.com or by heading to foursigmatic.com forward slash WGYT. If you're looking for a way to stay energized throughout the entire day, grab a bottle of Suniva Super Coffee. Suniva is something I drink on a daily basis. It's an organic bottled coffee blend with lactose-free protein and MCTs from coconut oil, which provides me with clean, all-day energy. Head to your local Whole Foods or use discount code WGYT at drinksupercoffee.com for 20% off your order. Suniva was founded by three college athletes who are brothers and wanted a cleaner way to stay energized throughout the entire day. Let's face it, we all want to look good in the clothes we wear, but I got tired of sifting through the racks looking for a quality pair of jeans that cost less than $300. Then I found Distilled. DSTLD, pronounced Distilled, offers premium denim and essentials at an affordable price. Their products cost just one-third of what other premium brands charge because Distilled refuses to work with middlemen, bringing savings directly to you. Just go to dstld.com right now and use the promo code JOURNEY10 in all caps at checkout to get 10% off your first purchase. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? Thanks for listening to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time. If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There, head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.